So if you could just introduce yourself, tell me your name, where you live, and what you do. <laughs> okay, so I am Maggie Freeling. I am a journalist and podcaster, and I live in Queens, New York. That's right, Queens. Yeah, Queens repping. Two Queens girls talking about wrongful convictions. Does it get I love any it. better than that? No, it doesn't. Hi, I'm Jillian Pensavalli, and welcome to Let the Women Do the Work, a podcast where we look at true crime stories from the perspectives of the women involved. These cases are complicated, and sometimes the most important voices tend to get lost in the chaos. And other times, these women are pulled into situations that twist and turn and test their stamina. Case in point, journalist, advocate, my friend, and all-around badass Maggie Freeling. Because this story she's here to tell does not end the way you think. I love seeing your face. <laughs> You're so beautiful. Oh, you are too. I love that we could do this like just like moisturized and that's it. Like, no, we're not done up at all. We're like this. I really just crawled out of bed. So I am not done up in any way. Yeah, no, I'm, it's like not happening. But that's how you know it's going to be a good conversation when we just do not give a fuck. Right, exactly. Maggie Freeling is a journalist with a passion for telling the stories of people on the margins, and specifically the wrongfully convicted. Over the past decade, Maggie's reported on everything from retail workers fighting to raise their minimum wage, to migrant conditions at the U.S.-Mexico border, to people who've disappeared in the fold of our broken criminal justice system. She's produced for Latino USA, Vice News, PRX, and a little place called the Obsessed Network. Ever heard of it? In 2019, the Ford Foundation deemed her one of 50 women who can change the world in journalism. Although I'd argue there's plenty more than that. And if you can't tell from the tone of my voice, yeah, I'm biased. But is it biased if you're just a huge fan of the journalist? Maggie's a badass. And something I find special about her work is how purposeful it is. Maggie almost solely tells stories that she believes will lead to a more just world if people hear them. There are means to an end. And with wrongful convictions, that end goal is to free innocent people. She doesn't really waste her time with anything else these days. Ever since I was young, I was always the kind of person that wanted to stand up for the underdog. I was always that kind of person. And I do remember my first internship when I was 18. I thought I wanted to be a travel writer because I love traveling. I travel all the time. That's one of the best parts about my job is that I get to travel for it. But I didn't realize that at the time. I thought the only way you could travel for work is to be a travel writer. So I was traveling. I did this like backpack your way through the Alps and three course meals and wine and cheat, you know, some like bullshit like that for some like travel magazine. And it was probably literally after I did that, that I was like, that was fun. That was not rewarding for me. And for me, what would be rewarding is helping people, not, you know, writing travel articles for people privileged enough to be able to go backpack the Alps. It just wasn't me. It was really right from there that I um, moved back to New York because I was living in Massachusetts at the time. And it was right when Occupy Wall Street was happening. I immediately started doing Occupy reporting and going down there. And that's really where it started. I was at Occupy Wall Street. That was really weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to think back on. That was so long ago, too. Yeah. But I just love that you're like, no, I do not have that travel bug anymore. I would really rather 
I mean, travel, but to places like Alliance instead of, you know, the Alps. <laughs> Which is just, honestly, it is just as cool as going to the Alps. It was, I had never been to Ohio. It was a whole other freaking world. <laughs> Like, you know, look, you got one <laughs> one hell of an education down in the lines. I did, Ohio. I did, for sure. On April 1st, 1999, the murder of a mother of five in her own home stunned the small town of Alliance, Ohio. But I never expected her to end up dead. The victim, 26-year-old Yvonne Lane, a beautiful, vivacious woman found in a pool of her own blood. Her throat slashed while her children slept. A day later, detectives identified their prime suspect, David Thorne, the father of one of the children. So here's where those twists and turns come in. Maggie's latest story was about this guy, David Thorne, who was convicted for the 1999 murder of his then ex-girlfriend, Yvonne Lane. He's maintained his innocence ever since, but the story the state has settled on goes like this. David hired his friend, Joe Wilkes, to murder Yvonne so that Dave wouldn't have to pay child support. Maggie came across the story on a website called Injustice Anywhere, and she's found a few leads here before. They feature a lot of wrongful conviction cases on their website, and David Thorne's was one of them. It was the spotlighted case. So it was, you know, featured at the top of the homepage. And I clicked it. The top line is pretty much, you know, murder for hire plot of this young, gorgeous 26-year-old mother of five. She's found brutally beaten in her home, almost decapitated, and her boyfriend and his friend were convicted of this murder. From there, Maggie and David got in touch, and she learned a ton about the investigation and the trial that led to this conviction. Both were, for all intents and purposes, shoddy. I guess I'm like, where do we start? Do we start with her? Or do we start with the crime scene? Let's say we start with the crime scene. Yvonne's throat had been slit, and there was blood everywhere. It was the kind of scene you'd want to carefully maintain for a proper investigation. But police and civilians alike trampled through this crime scene. This crime scene was being treated as a spectacle. This is a picture of a foot of a detective taking photos. A few shots later, the very same footprint he just made appears as evidence. Even the police chief brought an outsider, a woman, to the murder scene. And to make matters worse, police covered the body with a blanket taken from Yvonne's bedroom. Yeah, that would be a level of contamination, yes. And as for suspects, they focused on David from the start. The other two fathers of Yvonne's children were accounted for. One in prison, the other had an alibi. Police thought it must be David, even though it was known that Yvonne had been involved with other men. They even knew that there were members of their own department sleeping with her that should have been looked into, and they didn't. They got tips about members in their department. So, you know, all of that is overlooked. We hone in on David Thorne. We get a confession from his friend. And they go to trial. And pretty much immediately after trial, the confession is recanted. He says he was coerced and David maintained his innocence from the beginning. More on that friend and his so-called confession after the break. Hey, girl, Credit Karma's here. I love Credit Karma because I was a person who had a really hard time paying my bills on time and Credit Karma would have saved my life. Yeah, money and credit cards can be really scary. So here's the deal. Credit Karma is an app. It uses your credit profile to show you offers that are tailored to your financial situation. So if you need to get out of debt, if you need a credit card that works for you, if you're into those air miles, what they call frequent flyer miles. But also, like, Credit Karma partners with a wide range of card issuers so you can be sure you're exploring all sorts of options, right? Because, like, you don't know... 
who's going to approve you, who isn't. Credit Karma, like, sources all of that info for you. Right, and that's the thing. So they give you all these options, and then you're like, great, now I'm overwhelmed with all the options. But the best part about it (laughs) is that Credit Karma says, no, girl, they use all your credit info to show you your chances of approval. Yes. So they're like, oh, look at these 10 options, but these top five are really the ones you should focus on. And here's the thing. This is the most important part. Comparing cards on Credit Karma is 100% free and won't affect your credit score. People often think if you get your credit score checked or whatever, it affects your credit. Not with Credit Karma. They're not going to do anything bad for your no! credit. They're all about good What's for the, the you credit. You think they're going to mess with your FICO? I don't think so. No, they're definitely not. No. <laughs> your experience? Very, uh, no. Absolutely not. So, fam, are you ready to find the card for you? If so, head to Credit Karma and check out your personalized mix of offers today. That's right. Go to CreditKarma.com or the Credit Karma app to find the card for you. That's CreditKarma.com. And let me tell you, 20-year-old Patrick is very jealous that you have this option. I know. If you could turn back time. <laughs> am I right, Cher? Turn back Cher, time. Cher, Cher was really onto something. Little did she know about Credit Karma. <laughs> And we're back with a confession from that friend we mentioned, a man by the name of Joe Wilkes. Here's a clip of him telling the cops that David hired him to kill Yvonne. He's always been talking to me like how much he wishes that woman was out of his life and that he could have his little boy. And then I, for years, I told him to keep me out of it. I want nothing to do with it. And then what woman was that, Joe? Yvonne Lane. Okay. And then one day... I just lost everything and I didn't care about life no more and David knew about it and he took advantage of me. The confession from Joe Wilkes came three months after the murder. For background, Joe was a lot of things. A drifter, a victim of childhood abuse and abandonment, and a friend of David's. The state story from this confession goes that Dave gave Joe a hotel room for the night, gloves, a knife, and $300. With this, Joe walked into Yvonne's house, killed her, then walked about four miles down a main road in Alliance back to the hotel. The end. Joe, do you still offer this test, this statement of your own free will? Yes. Okay. Have, have the detectives of the Alliance Police Department or anybody else promised you anything for your t- for your statement? No. Okay. Have we have we have we threatened you? Have we done anything? to you to get this statement from you. Okay. We're going to end this statement. It's still Thursday, July 15th, 1999. Time now is 16.36 hours. David was sentenced to life without parole and Joe got 30 years. And soon after the trial, Joe recanted his confession, saying it was coerced. And the two have been behind bars ever since. Now, Maggie has two loose requirements for stories she pursues. One, the story should be, as she puts it, bonkers. And two, the wrongfully convicted person should be vetted for their innocence. It had both of those things. I mean, yeah. <laughs> right. And the other thing to me that was so important is David at that time had been in prison for 22 years. That's a long time. He went in when he was 26 years old. 22 years. And and he, at this point, did not have any representation. He did not have an attorney. All of his appeals were used up. When I met him, he told me his case was dead in the water, which it was. He needed new evidence. He needed something to get him back into court to help prove his innocence. So she ends up covering the case on her podcast, Unjust and Unsolved, in hopes of bringing awareness to David's situation. And it works. Some interest in financing and investigation came forward. And Maggie assembles a team to not only continue the search for new evidence of David's innocence, but also share the process with listeners. The podcast Murder in Alliance was born. And with that, 
She and private investigators John Harden and Danny Waxler flew to Ohio. John and Danny were with an organization called Proclaim Justice, a nonprofit actually started by Jason Baldwin of the West Memphis Three case, which we kicked off the season with. Anyway, John and Danny came along to vet David's case. If they, with Maggie, found new evidence in support of David's innocence, they were going to run with it. But first, they had to piece this story back together, where it all happened. So (laughs) it's really crazy, you know, to finally go and see the places that I've heard about for a year at this point. It had been about a year that I had known David, known about his case, worked on his case. And then you go to the crime scene and you're like, holy crap, there's actually a lot of houses here. There were people actually watching this. You know, it was like, okay, hold on. So this guy says he murders her, but then he walks four and a half miles down a highway with no one seeing him. That sounds kooky, but then when you see it in real life, you're like, that didn't even happen. How did that happen? Right. So yeah, being there was, it was pretty surreal to be there. But ultimately, it was just the three of us investigating, tracking down witnesses, finding new people, new leads. Um, We put up billboards. We had a tip line. I mean, we were doing everything we possibly could in alliance to find evidence of David being innocent. I mean, he's claiming he's innocent for 22 years. Joe, the one who made the confession, is also saying, I didn't do this. They forced me to. So, you know, when you have a wrongful conviction, you really work backwards. We were starting with this guilt. And now we had to prove his innocence. And that's what we did for a good year. So they worked backwards, back to 1999 in this small town in Ohio that they'd flown into from very different places. Maggie from New York, Danny and John from Austin. And they took that context seriously. Maggie clued me in on a not-so-great trend in our modern media age called parachute journalism. When and where a crisis occurs, so flock the reporters with their lights, cameras, and questions, whether the community is ready for that or not. And once they have their story, they leave, never to follow up again. Her team was keen on going further by embracing the story that Alliance had to tell. There's certainly not an array of... uh boutique vegan coffee shops to go to, Mm -hmm. but we made do with our Texas Roadhouse every time we were there. (laughs) You know, we made do with our Chipotle, and we spent a lot of time at this local bar uh, called Ray's Roadhouse, and that's where we met the town. Uh, That's where they go. That's where people go to drink after work. And Ray is a local. Ray went to school with Yvonne. We learned that one night while we were just drinking there. So we spent a lot of time learning about this area. And it's unique. It's definitely unique. And it's definitely interesting. And it's definitely a place that I never want to go back to in the winter (laughs) because it's freaking cold. But, you know, I have have an affection for it now. I I do. And I, I understand a lot of what Yvonne was probably going through. And I think that's really important when you're telling these kinds of stories. Yeah. I love that you had a spot. I love that it was a local spot. And I love that you were like also doing good work at Ray's. That's where you were putting pieces of this puzzle together. So it it was interesting because when we first got there, it's all the same people at Ray's. You know, we would go every night after Texas Road. Literally, we would go to Texas Roadhouse, go next door to Ray's. Like, that's what we would do. That was like really all there is to do. Yeah. So once they started realizing we were there and they didn't know who we were, because again, it's a small town, they were like, what what the hell are you guys doing here? And when we would say like, oh, we're investigators, we're journalists, you know, do you know about this murder? 
Eventually, everyone in the bar started knowing us. And then they'd come to us when the podcast came out and be like, oh, my God, people are talking about it. We heard this information and we heard this information. And I remember there was one night where all these people started coming up to us who knew people that were involved in the case and started, like, telling us this stuff and buying us shots. And so I just, like, turned on my recorder and just put the phone down and just, like, let it go. I was like, tell us, what do you know? What do you know about this guy? What do you know about this guy? Who do you think did this? What have you heard? Like, Ray went to school with her. We're like, Ray, what do you think happened? What do you remember about this? We were still doing intel while we're just trying to like, relax for the night, you know? Like, right. It was immersive. And we had, we, you know, that's what good reporting is to know the locals, know what's going on, know what people are talking about. Yeah. And I'm sure you also get people thinking, oh, it's casual. It's just us here. And that's where you can have some really good conversations. Yeah. I, I would say nothing particularly came of any of these. But as you heard in the podcast, um, there's an interview we did with a guy. People in this town did not trust the police. They do not like the police. I mean, people in this town, and we're not talking like anarchists, like ACAB people that don't like the police. We're talking about people that are genuinely afraid of their police department, know that they're corrupt, and know that they can get away with it. And, you know, what we would hear is like a lot of really dirty encounters that these people were having with the police. Wow. That's really where where our investigation started. Anytime you're dealing with the police and there's an ungodly amount of things that they do that are shady, um, things things become really, really sketchy because the things we were finding out about the department are, are were not great. And they didn't want this stuff getting out there. You know, when the billboards went up, people started listening to the podcast and people started hearing these things about the Alliance Police Department and former police chiefs. And it's just it was scary. It was dangerous. I mean, the police run the town in a small town and we're in a small town, you know, I'm pretty obvious who I am. And that happened a few times. We were followed. You know, we would be places where people knew who I was. Okay, I'm going to chime in here for a second, not just to clarify what Maggie's saying, but to also paint a picture. Maggie's about five feet tall, usually dressed in all black. She has this gorgeous, long, flowing hair. She's covered in tattoos. Her eye makeup is always amazing. I've called her a smoke show before. I will do it again here. The point is, you can't not notice Maggie. They're a little more inconspicuous, you know, just two guys in suits. But I look like me, so it was pretty obvious who I was once the show got rolling. And and that was that was scary. You know, there's somebody in this town that we believed was a murderer. Right. And they're out there. And remember, Maggie and her team weren't just actively investigating for the sake of suspense. It's not always about you, podcast listener. I'm kidding. We love you. So sure, they were telling a story, but this was also real life with very real people at the center of it all. This case was uncharted territory for Maggie in a number of ways. A big one being that she couldn't conduct the interviews. Since her team was looking for new evidence of David's innocence in real time with the project, she had to leave the talking to John and Danny. PIs are, essentially, detectives for hire. And if you've ever seen one in a true crime documentary, I've seen many, they almost always love their jobs. They're so amped to be here. Anyway, they're licensed to collect information that can hold up in a court of law. 45 out of 50 states require a license to practice private investigation. And yep, Ohio is one of them. Now, Maggie's a journalist, and journalists run the risk of tainting potential witnesses that could be used at trial. So in order to build a case for David, Maggie couldn't taint their evidence as a journalist. So she had to drive the car from the back seat, if you will. 
so, you know, I'd be listening and taking notes and then I'd be planning like, okay, well, they just mentioned this person. Who's that person? We should be looking into this person. And I would be doing like background stuff for my computer in the car while they're doing the interviews. But every interview, there's a new lead to track down. And it was like, we had to prioritize, okay, is this important or is this important? And where is this going to take us? And, you know, is this person, um, do we need to talk to them? Are they a material witness? So there was a lot of those kinds of discussions. Yeah. Did you have a conversation about how they were going to conduct these interviews and conversations? Because I could just imagine you as a journalist in the car saying follow-up questions to nobody, but you can't communicate with the people who are actually having this conversation. So did you say like, like teach them how to be a journalist as much as they were teaching you how to be a PI? It was crazy. And there was a lot of teaching between both of us. And I loved it because I was like, oh my gosh, I just got like an inside look on how to be a PI. Like it was amazing. Like Danny's move was very different from me. Like when I go into interviews, I try to be unassuming, but also it's difficult as a woman too. You don't want to come off as stupid, you know, which a lot of people unfortunately are like, oh, you're a woman, whatever, and will be condescending to you. So I come into interviews very prepared and very like, um, you know, you're not going to trick me. I, I have all, I know everything. But Danny goes in like, he plays really, really stupid, and he actually gets people to tell him things based on that, which is something I never even thought of. And so that was amazing. But yeah, sitting in the car, I'd be like, no, 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 follow up with this, follow up with this. Oh, I need him to say this. Like, oh my gosh, you're forgetting this. So I would like text them. But they, you know, weren't really looking at their phone. So it was like, it was definitely a very interesting, frustrating process. <laughs> Yeah. to listen in on interviews. And I felt bad for them, too, because I hate when people are listening to my interviews. You know, it's really it's awkward. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what was it like allowing listeners into your investigative process? You know, it was something I had never done before. I had done investigative stories, but they always air after the fact. I mean, this was airing in actual real time. I would come back from Ohio, make an episode that week and put it out. It was difficult on the production side <laughs> and investigation side. Um, we did take a month off so we could, you know, get more reporting on the ground investigation done because we were coming to a point where it was like, okay, we got to put out an episode in a couple weeks and we are kind of at a standstill. We don't know where to go. We're waiting on documents. We're waiting on people. Um, so that was hard. We had no idea who the murderer was when we set out to do this. Um, we just wanted to make sure everything was done by the book. So, yeah, it, it was definitely a challenge, but we, we did it. <laughs> and what they ended up doing was not what anyone had envisioned. Oh, did you think we were done with those twists and turns? Nope, not even close. Hey, girl, Liquid IV is here. I have a story for you. I have one for you. You want to go first or should I go first? I'll go first. Okay, okay. So last night, Steve and I went to a fancy pants dinner at this new friend's house, and we had a little too much wine. Sure. And we came home and went to bed. This morning, I rolled out of bed, and all I could think about was Liquid IV. Yeah. Because I was like, it's the hydration multiplier. You pour the little stick into your big glass of water. You drink the whole thing quickly, and you feel better fast. Yeah, because the thing is, one stick of Liquid IV hydration multiplier in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone. My yeah. story is, please, it's getting hot out here. It is. In 
in New York City, and I find I'm thirsty all the time. Same. And I couldn't figure out why. I was like, I just feel like no matter <laughs> how much the, I drink water. <laughs> it's the heat from the sun, it's girl. It's the heat, I know. But <laughs> I was like, why? why? But then I had yeah. liquid IV, uh-huh. and I'm not constantly thirsty. I'm I just know. hydrated. No, you feel great. It tastes great. It's packed with vitamins B3, B5, B6, B12, and vitamin C. It makes you drink more water. Also, it's not just a hangover cure. I feel like sometimes I get lost in that. Oh, you do. I do. I throw it in my water bottle when I go to the gym, which I do at least four times a week. Yes, exactly. And it has three times the electrolytes of those traditional sports drinks. Yes. Who needs them? Get rid of those. Get rid of your regular water. Have the water that tastes good. Yeah, and Liquid IV is on a mission to change the world. They've donated over 20 million servings globally. Yeah. Come on. Liquid IV, you're like family. So fam, grab your Liquid IV in bulk nationwide at Costco, or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WORK at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order when you use promo code WORK at liquidiv.com. Experience better hydration today at liquidiv.com. Promo code WORK. Have the wine, have the liquid IV. It's good anytime. It's true. At the gym, at the bar, wherever you need it to be. In the summertime. I want to stop here and have us take a few steps in Maggie's shoes. And they're probably Harley Davidson boots because that's all she wears. Imagine you're the journalist. You're the Maggie, right? You've been at the storytelling game for quite a while now, and you've been following the trail of this specific murder for over a year. You're flying back and forth from New York to Ohio in search of new information that you could share with listeners and your PI buddies to convince them, hey, this guy's innocent. Take his case. And you catch COVID of all things. You're exhausted. And then, finally, you get word that your team has the green light to speak with the person who could connect all of these pieces. And that person is Joe Wilkes, the man who confessed to killing Yvonne for David all those years ago. But there's one catch. It can't be recorded. Sorry, prison rules. Any other interview Joe has ever done has been on a TV show, four cameras. His interviews have been edited. John and Danny got to go in there sit down, talk to him candidly and extensively and ask him, you know, what happened? Did you do this? Who did do this? And um, no one had ever, ever done that. We, you know, there was questions that had just never been asked of him that people didn't care to ask because they were just making a 20 minute TV show. Right. So this is a very different kind of situation for Joe. I spent four hours sitting in a car panicking <laughs> While they're in prison talking to Joe and I'm having a panic attack about that, like, oh, my God, what are they saying? What are they saying? You know, four hours has gone by. Are we talking about how to get him out? Did he finally say, you know, who we think actually did it? Right. And then they get to the car and it was like, no, none of that happened. He couldn't help us with anything. Joe's story has changed so many times. So that was really one of the big things about going to talk to him. It's like, what story are we going to get this time? Is he going to stick to his story? After we talked to Joe, the story was a new story. It was a new story. And we weren't expecting that. We were not expecting a new story from Joe 22 years later. And what he said was, I don't actually remember anything. I don't remember anything. I had a full blackout, which is probably the least helpful thing you could tell somebody if you're trying to prove your innocence. So that was really shattering for us. I mean, they spent four hours with him really trying to, Joe, help us help you. Help us help you. You're telling us you didn't do this. But now your new story is that you had 14-hour amnesia at the exact time that she's being murdered, that you're allegedly the one doing this. 
And that's not what I was expecting. And I was not emotionally ready for that. Or or anyway, you know, story-wise, emotionally, I just was not ready for that. I really was hoping Joe would be like, look, this is what happened. This is where I was. Talk to this person. They'll alibi me. And um, it just wasn't good for him. And that was kind of when I started realizing that maybe what we thought the whole time is not actually the truth. And here's the moment in the car. After that interview with Joe, where all of them processed that their investigation had gone in a whole different direction. The moment where they sat back and considered the possibility that they were at a dead end, so to speak, with no new evidence of David or Joe's innocence. No clarity on the story. The moment they reckoned with the possibility of being wrong. It's in the podcast, and we'll play it here, too. I don't know. I feel like I got, like, wrapped (coughs) up. I feel like I got emotional. I don't know. I'd feel really, um, confused. This is an emotional work. You're dealing with people's lives. I know. I feel really confused. That's normal. I don't, I have no regrets. I do. You guys have spent so much time. This has been a great journey for us. Everybody that we have talked to, everything that we have learned, everything that that has every direction that we've been pointed in, for the most part, has shown this is a worthy case to investigate. Yeah, there was enough enough damage done in this investigation to warrant us being here the commitment we all made to this. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel a little stupid right now. No, 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 no. Why would you feel stupid? It's a worthy case to investigate. So I have no regrets, but worthy cases sometimes don't pan out to be an innocence case. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, what if David did this? It's a fair question, Maggie. I don't think he did, right. but now I'm really like, what if he fucking did? And I just invested all of this. Yeah, it's just like, it's my credibility, and I think I just went really hard believing them. I mean, my heart, my desire, my, my gut says he didn't. But there are some real issues with this. Yeah, I'm just trying to reckon with that right now. I know, Maggie. I know. Believe me, I know. If it turns out, worst case scenario, we were wrong and David did have a role in this in any way, we at least can go to bed and say, we gave it everything we had more than any other motherfuckers, anyone else. We know at the end, we gave it the best fight, the best fight he could have had. I thought the best way to explain the struggle that we were having without explaining it was just showing it. To show that moment in the car where we're all grappling with what now, what does this mean, was much more effective than saying, Joe said this, so now this means we have no idea where the case is going. Right. You know, that's boring. And I just said that. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's just much more effective to take the listener on every part of the journey. And part of that journey was having these real conversations in the car. I mean, every day we were doing them. And this one was a really pivotal one that I wanted the listener to hear extended. You know, I think it's also important to 
you know, I, I try really hard to humanize the victim in this case, Yvonne, and, and humanize Joe and David. You know, everybody's a human. And I think part of that had to be humanizing me, John and Danny, too, because, you know, we're people, too. And I think um, a lot of times in true crime, you know, people forget, you know, yes, we're we're a vessel to tell these stories. But if you're doing them right and you're actually investing and if you actually care, like that, that takes a toll on you, too. So Maggie and her team were left baffled. If Joe's story didn't make any sense, David's didn't either. So where to next? Well, as you might have heard in the podcast, (laughs) I just keep going because I don't know when to stop when I'm about to have a mental breakdown. So we continued to pour through documents. Yeah. And while we were doing that, we came across some documents we had never seen because now we were looking at things in a different light. You could read one document three times and find something new, which we did. You know, now that we're seeing this and we're going, okay, wait a second maybe they did do this. Mm-hmm. We were going through documents and we found one that was actually really damning for David that we had never seen before. And that was that night, right after talking to Joe. Looking through David's case file, they found a log of interviews that had not been transcribed. And one of those interviews was with one of David's ex-girlfriends. In the podcast, Maggie calls her Angie as a placeholder for her real name. So that's what we'll do here too. David and Angie were together for about five years and they broke up in 1995 just before David met Yvonne, actually. So Maggie and her team listened to Angie's interview there in the bar, and the contents were jarring. Angie described David as an aggressive and abusive partner. She recounted several violent incidents with him, including one time when they got in a fight and he pulled a gun on her, threatening to, quote, blow her head off. And if all that weren't enough reason to pause... Angie recounted another significant instance in this interview. She said that the last time she saw David was in January of 1999, a few months before the murder. She was working at a hair salon at the time, and David walked in for a haircut. And while there, she said he told her that he wanted custody of his and Yvonne's son, and that he had to prove Yvonne was an unfit mother in order to do so. David had long told Maggie that he was fine sharing custody with Yvonne, that their relationship was cordial and they were even hooking up occasionally. But this threw a wrench in the story he'd always told Maggie. If David was lying about this, what else could he be lying about? And I think John and I stayed up literally all night just like trying to process this, you know, tape recorders off so we could just be ourselves, which (laughs) heard a lot of in the podcast. Anyway, a lot of cursing, just a lot of really raw tape. Just really process it. It was a lot of processing and emotions and like trying to see things in a totally different light than what we had thought for the past year. After this, the guys visited David in prison with all of their findings in tow. It was basically David's last opportunity to convince them to take his case. Over several hours, John and Danny walked through David's timeline with him. Sure, there had been holes in the state story that got him convicted in the first place, but there were also holes in his. David spent a lot of the interview distancing himself from Joe. He claimed that he only knew Joe as someone he pitied and he'd occasionally give rides to him. That's why, as his story went, on the day of Yvonne's murder, he picked up Joe on the side of the road. Which, all right, whatever. But it became a big opening in David's story when he went on to leave out a key part of that day too. At around 5 p.m. on that same day, it was long confirmed by witnesses that David was in the driveway of a house with Joe, the house of a family Joe had been staying with, the Enochs. 
and members of the Enoch family confirmed that David had been there before visiting Joe. Why would they have been hanging out if Joe was just some drifter to him? David wasn't clear on how he'd gotten there on the night of the murder. He skirted that part of his story completely. So when Danny and John said, hey, we know you were there with Joe that night, he doubled back. Oh, Bob's Pizza. Then he goes and he's at this at the drive-through of Bob's, Bob's or what it Bob's Pizza. And he looks up and all of a sudden there's Joe waving at him and says, hey, you know, what are you doing? Oh, this is where I'm staying. Here's the driveway. Pull in here. And he said, I had no idea that he was staying at the Enix. It was pure coincidence. And the reason I was going through the drive-thru was to get a soda to save it for later after shoot fighting. So, like, that was kind of weird, you know? Why are you picking up a soda that's going to sit in your fucking truck or whatever for five, six hours? (laughs) After, when he gets back in there, he's going to think, I fucked that up. Yeah, yeah. And that's when it became clear that speaking to David didn't clarify anything. It only unraveled his story more. You know, we know memories aren't tape recorders. Just tell us what you do remember. And, And he left out the person that is responsible for him sitting in that jail... He completely, without prompting, he was not going to bring up the fact that he was with Joe at the Enix. Yeah. He didn't, because he was given the opportunity. Yeah. At that point, I was just pissed. I mean, I was just pissed that not only that I had been lied to, but that there are so many people that I have talked to, just personally covered their cases, 21 people, that deserved this platform too. And I was just very upset with myself that this was the story I picked to platform to millions of listeners. And now it turns out that this guy was probably a liar and fooled all of us. Hey girls, Stamps.com is here. I hear you have a story. Look, we've been sending out a lot of stuff to the TCO $20 Patreon tier. So we sent out the visors and we sent out the magnets. And like the best thing in the world is to print the postage here in the office. We use the scale. We know exactly what it costs. We print the label and then we take it to the post office. We cut the line. The line at the post office is always like an hour long. You nicely walk up to the front. (laughs) You point at the box of the lady. She gives you a thumbs up and you walk out. Yeah, because it's all done. Exactly. Because you did it all. Because anything you can do at the post office, you can do on Stamps.com. Yeah, and all you need is your computer, the computer yes. you have right now. You have that and a printer. Yeah. You don't need any special supplies, no special equipment, yeah. nothing like that. You know what else you need? To figure out what to spend all the money you're saving on. Because oh. we're talking, you're going to save up to 30% off USPS rates and 86% off UPS. I like that. Thinking about how I'm going to spend all my money. <laughs> so whether you're sending an office invoice or you're an Etsy shop sending out your products or you're a podcast sending out yeah. some magnets to listeners, totally. Stamps.com is your mailing and shipping solution. So fam, stop wasting time and start saving saving money when you use stamps.com to mail and ship. Sign up with promo code WORK for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and, my favorite, the digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. I live by that scale. I know. Me too. Me I, had, too. I had to send a, car, a birthday card the other day that had extra postage required. Yeah. I had no idea what no, I was doing. I, I had 
know. done with the birthday cards being sent back I know. because of the postage. Got my little digital scale. I'm sorry. I just had to say that. That wasn't in the call to action, no. but I love it. <laughs> Fam, just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, enter code WORK, yeah. and, and there you go. Yeah, and at the very least, stop getting cards sent back to you. It's true. And give that person at the at the post office a thumbs up when you drop that box. Yes, they work very hard. It's true. <laughs> So here we are with Maggie at the end of her rope on this case. Remember her two requirements for wrongful conviction stories she investigates, that they be bonkers and that the person they concern be innocent. And unfortunately for Maggie, they couldn't find the evidence needed to prove that after all, which in its essence is bonkers. But that's just one of two boxes checked. Maggie was devastated. I'm not a novice. I've done this many times. And it it just kind of like re-put into perspective, like, really, like this idea of trusting people and building a relationship. I built a relationship with this person for two years and I had no idea who he was. Mm -hmm. He was somebody I thought he was. and, And that's not. It was a learning experience, but it was also a really, really, really hard one. Because again, this podcast wasn't to make money or be famous. For me, it was to free somebody from prison. And when that wasn't the outcome... I was devastated. I was broken. I was broken for months. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I did. (laughs) I cried a lot. I mean, the crying in the car was not the end of the crying. I mean, there was a lot of crying. There was a lot of phone calls with John and Danny. You know, there was this beautiful conversation. I didn't put it in that Danny called and I was at home like working on the script, which is at this point devastating. I still had like six episodes to put out. Right, right. And I'm feeling like this is the end. Like, what am I even going to freaking write about when like I'm feeling done now? I'm done. Like the guys aren't even taking the case at this point. Like, oh, my God, I still have to put out episodes for people. Yeah. That was like almost impossible to get through. So it was a lot of like napping, (laughs) sleeping, crying and then being like, crap, I got to get back to this. Danny, you know, this middle-aged, hardened private investigator calling and just having the most beautiful conversation with me about, you know, how I'm not a failure and and how, you know, this is amazing because there's transparency and all these great things and how people needed to hear this so they can move on. And that was probably the most important part to heal was hearing John and Danny, you know, one, say, you know, we're not mad at you for giving us this case. (laughs) They spent a lot of time and money on it. Right. But saying like, this was a process for all of us. And just knowing that I wasn't alone in going through it. And even for listeners like Jillian, I know that, you know, at the live show, you, somebody, uh, you know, gave me a shout out in the audience. And that was really nice. Like it was, it was really, you know, I felt like I was going through it alone and the burden was all on me, but it really wasn't. I was going through it with the audience and that was the point. And they felt it with me. Yeah, I agree. You were never in it alone. But again, how do you not feel that when you're you, right? Yeah. Something that Maggie told me she holds dear in her work is the very principle of honesty. She says she likes to let people speak for themselves, for better or worse. So I asked her how she applied that principle to this story. That's a really difficult one in this case. So I'll give you an example in another instance, and then we can go back to this case. In the case of Charles Erickson, he was wrongfully convicted almost 20 years ago with his co-defendant, Ryan Ferguson. And Ryan got out in 2013, and Charles is still in. All of his appeals have been denied in the same set of evidence. One person is out and the other one is still in. 
And in Charles's case, the media has really demonized him. It's very similar with Joe Wilkes. In this case, Charles confessed and then later recanted. And so the media has really demonized him. And Joe's certainly been demonized. And with Charles, I let him, I allowed him, again, the chance to explain without it being, you know, 15-second clips of him for a 25-minute news hit. And Charles wrote to me, and he was the first one who really made me see that's what I was actually doing. Like, I was intentionally doing it, but he wrote to me and said, the piece you did on me was the first time my voice has ever been truthfully heard. He was like, it was the first time I ever felt like my story had been truthfully told. And that was so important to me. And I let Charles tell his story. You know, other people hadn't. Other people hadn't talked about, you know, the reasons behind why he made this false confession and why afterwards, even when Ryan was released, he believed for so long that he did this. So similarly in this, you know, David has had many chances to tell his story. You know, I've had extended interviews with David. It's all in the podcast. But there were other people who needed to tell their stories too, like these witnesses. And I taped them and they were able to tell, you know, it wasn't just like he said this, like I allowed what he said to be heard. It was a little more difficult because, of course, I can't have Yvonne's voice in. And I, you know, reached out to her family members, her children, as many people as I could to get her voice in. They didn't want to talk. So it it was tough in this one. I mean, I mean, I I think I, I got everyone's voices who needed who who were able to be heard in it. And Joe is not in it. And that is something that is glaring. However, after the guys decided to not take the case, I was then allowed to talk with Joe. And I've been speaking with Joe. And I do want to give Joe that chance to tell his story. And we're trying to figure out how to do that. So stay tuned for a bonus, <laughs> because yeah. I think Joe really does deserve to be heard, especially, you know, the way the outcome of the podcast was. Yeah. You know, you also said something at the end of the podcast that I found so moving and so important. And it was about Yvonne and one, not letting her get lost in this. And two, that her choices and lifestyle shouldn't really have anything to do with what happened to her. Mm -mm. So can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So that was a really, that was something that was always paramount in my mind and the lifestyle she was living, you know, hearing about the sex work and and multiple partners and potential drug use. We had to be sensitive to not, you know, make it sound victim blaming because that wasn't what we were doing. The point was that these kinds of lifestyles really open up the avenue for more suspects. And so it was really hard because again, we don't have Yvonne's voice. We don't have her family. We didn't have many people, you know, talking to us about Yvonne other than hearing just these stories that, you know, aren't to some people might not be the most flattering. So I really wanted to clarify that at the end, that it doesn't matter what she did or if she was using drugs or, you know, sleeping with people. It it has no relevance to the fact that she was a person. She was a mother. She was a girlfriend. She was a daughter. And she was brutally murdered. It says nothing about her character to me. And I just wanted to make that clear. And, you know, I I also had this guilt with um, having to put the family through this again, now with the outcome being what we know it is. And so that was something that I really dealt with, too. You know, her family lives in the area. They had to see the billboards. Yeah. You know, that's something that, that happened. And um, 
you know, just in general, I just want people to remember that, you know, who Yvonne was besides some of the things that we had to explore in the podcast. You started out doing one thing with this podcast, right? And you said, well, it ended up not being that. So what did it end up becoming? I think it ended up being a lot of things. I mean, you know, for everybody, it just kind of became a learning lesson of like, okay, we can't take people at their word all the time. You know, we really need to look into this and things on their face might not always be what they seem. You know, we were told in this case that everybody's lying and there's corruption and lying. And and, and while that does exist, it wasn't to the extent that we were told. When we talked to these witnesses, we found that, no, not all of these people are lying. And so it was a learning experience, I think, for myself and for listeners to, you know, just really make sure you have the facts and the case files and and talk to people, you know, who have vetted it. It's not always what it seems. And I think also, you know, it wound up just being a release for a lot of people. I think a lot of people who have followed this case, and he, David has a lot of followers. He's had multiple TV shows. I mean, he is a case that has been out there. There's a lot of people who can move on now. Um, who who say, you know, wow, I spent a lot of time on this case. You know, it's, it is not what I thought it was. And I'm going to go work for somebody else now. And I think that's a good thing. And I think it also became, you know, if you were just listening for a crazy, you know, twist and turny story and now you care about wrongful convictions, that's awesome too. You know, there was a lot of outcomes that weren't freeing David, but they were all all okay outcomes. As you heard her say, Maggie just doesn't stop. She's already following the trails of her next stories, one she can't announce yet. But what I can tell you is this. It's estimated that there are more than 20,000 innocent people in U.S. prisons. And Maggie is determined to play her part in freeing as many of them as possible. Really think about that number. 20,000. And that's a very low estimate. It's hard to hear that and not want to take action, right? So here's what you can do. Maggie recommends checking out the innocenceproject.org, as well as her Instagram, at Maggie Freeling, to read up on specific cases. And check out Maggie's podcast, Unjust and Unsolved, where she originally connected with David in the first place. Each episode features a different case about someone unfairly tried or convicted, and each ends with a direct call to action. Let the Women Do the Work is a production from the Obsessed Network. It's produced by Becca DiGregorio, Natalie Grillo, Patrick Hines, and me. Jillian Pensavalli. Our editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Find me on Twitter at Jillian with a G. And remember, just let the women do the work. I love you. Same for you, though. I am. This is not even like work right now. This is just a lovely conversation with you. I appreciate it. That makes me feel so nice. I really (laughs) do. I know it's hard when you've been through something hard and then someone's asking you about it. Like, I totally get it. So I really do appreciate you taking the time. I think it's part of the healing process. I do. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad you think that. Yeah. Yeah. 